Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hey, hey, Jamie. Yeah? Caitlin? <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't expecting that, but um Neither could, was I. Could you look could you look out the window? Yeah. It's it's us out there. Yeah. There's evil doppelganger Caitlin and Jamie outside. Oh no. But they're cute. But I like they're them cute. better than us. <laughs> what if they're nicer than us? What if they're actually not evil? What if we're the evil ones? It's open <gasps> to interpretation. Well, guess what? Here's the twist. I am the other. I'm the the one outside is the one that you thought was me. Oh my goodness. Boo. <laughs> that was an effective well, opening. That was our best one. Yep. Yet, I yep. think. High score. Um, <laughs> welcome to the Bechtel cast. My name is Caitlin Durante. My name is Jamie Loftus. And this is our podcast about the representation of uh, of, a, of, a, of a lot of things in movies. We, we come to some of your favorite movies using an intersectional lens, using the Bechdel test as a jumping off point for discussion. And the Bechdel test, of course, being, if you're not familiar, if this is your first episode ever and you've never heard... I think this will be a fun point of entry. This, is, this would be a fun yeah. first episode. Yeah, so welcome. Mm -hmm. The Bechdel test is a media metric... Uh, sometimes known as the Bechtel-Wallace test. It was created by cartoonist Alison Bechtel, mm -hmm. and it requires, for our purposes, this is our rendition of it because there are various uh, versions of the test, but ours is that two people of any marginalized gender, they have to have names, they have to speak to each other about something other than a man for at least two lines of dialogue that's our bar. My favorite, and so this is just a jumping off point for discussion, so I can already say this movie passes the Bechdel test, but one of my favorite mm -hmm. passes is when it's 
Lupita Nyong'o and uh, Elizabeth Moss talking to each other about how Lupita doesn't really want to talk to her. <laughs> Elizabeth Moss is like, oh, okay, totally. I'm like, that's a pass. She's like, and are you okay, Lupita? And she's, <laughs> she's just like, like, I'm not good at talking. I don't really want to talk to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was one of my favorite passes of this movie or really of the cast at all. I'm like, you know, two women yeah. agreeing that they don't really want to talk right now. That's a pass. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and we're so excited to bring back a a much beloved guest for a movie that she was really excited to talk about that is a much requested movie on the cast. Mm-hmm. The movie, of course, being Us, mm-hmm. Jordan Peele's Us from 2019. And the guest, of course, being writer, actor, co-host of the podcast Popcorn Book Club and recent guest on our Cheetah Girls episode. It's Karama Donkwa. Hey. Hello and welcome back. Hey. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, I am so excited. Like Jamie said, I was very excited to talk about this movie. I think I sent you an email with seven different us is on it. I was like, I could talk about any of these movies, also us and this movie and also us. And I know, I don't know us, maybe. (laughs) So. It's, and it's been a, mo- a movie that has been requested by listeners since before it came out. So oh, wow. we are we are so excited that you're back. Welcome back. How are you? I am good. I am, uh, uh, you know, here, which is <laughs> more than a lot of people can say. And I'm very happy for that. Have not been killed by an evil doppelganger or a coronavirus yet. Amazing. So knock on wood. Knock on wood. That keeps being true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So tell us, what is your relationship with the film Us? Why, of the list that you provided, was it on there seven times? <laughs> um, well, I saw Us. I would just like to shout out my friend Mike. He took me with him to an advanced screening of Us. So I got to Ooh. see it before it was officially released to the public. Nice. Uh, he works at BuzzFeed. So they had like a little screening thing for BuzzFeed people. And he was like, do you want to be my plus one? And I'm like, good, because if you would ask one of your white friends, I would have felt funny (laughs) so I got to see I think it was like a couple of weeks before it was released to the public and I was just struck by and I love horror and growing up as a black person not seeing myself in a ton of horror or seeing myself as like definitely never a final girl in horror Mm -hmm. uh sucked (laughs) um like i think scream i love scream that's one of my favorite horror franchises i'm so excited they're making a new one because i've seen all four scream movies all three seasons of the television show which no one watched i was like i totally (laughs) forgot that was a thing (laughs) yeah for multiple seasons so um i think scream 2 was the movie that was the only scream movie that had any black characters in it yes and they killed jada pinkett smith in the cold open in the movie right. theater. It was a beautiful scene. Love her. Like, after acknowledging, they're like, wow, horror movies always kill the black characters right away. And then the black characters get killed right away. <laughs> Immediately. Like, four seconds after they're done saying that sentence. So just Jordan Peele bringing black horror sort of to the forefront of the horror conversation is exciting. And, like, I feel like this much more than Get Out leans into horror more than comedy, though he is sort of mm-hmm. on the line of both, which I think is great. And I love that tradition, which is one of the reasons I like the Scream franchise so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I'm excited about talking about black horror. And I love Lupita Nyong'o just always, forever. Yeah. Oh. 
and so yeah, I just love everything about this movie, and it's they 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 have matching jumpsuits. I mean, it's fashion forward. <laughs> it's got everything. Yeah, the I mean the tethered. I think I mean from a we'll talk about all the complexities, but the from a fashion perspective, I mean hands down, you gotta admire it. We deserve to die for not coordinating our outfits. Just like <laughs> on that basis alone, it's like yeah, you guys underground and they got it together. Yeah, how how'd they do that? Where'd they get them? Uh, that is my main question. Like I have a lot of questions. I do think that it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about Get Out because Mm -hmm. it was like everybody was comparing it to Get Out and Get Out was so critically acclaimed. And I think that it is not as good of a movie as Get Out in terms of it's not as tight, but I like it better. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. It's it's weird because it's like, because especially when it's like a director's second movie, it's impossible to not be tempted to compare it to the first but in terms Mm -hmm. i mean the conversations surrounding the two movies were also very very different in ways that i think are really interesting and excited to get Mm -hmm. into it uh kimmy what's your oh (gasps) wow we're us it's us Uh, (laughs) i uh i saw this movie uh shortly after it came out i saw it in theaters twice because I was really confused the first time and <laughs> then did a little bit of reading, a little bit of research, and then was really excited to go back and see it again. And then when it hit streaming, I think I've seen, I think this was the fourth or fifth time I've watched this movie. It is a very rewarding movie on the rewatch, I think. Like, yes. It really is. I watched it in theaters three times, I think, and then I've watched it again like four or five times since. So I've seen it almost 10. And it's like every time it is so I don't know, like I I really respect, especially like a director that can put a lot of references in their work without like feeling like they're being like thrown at you and you're being bashed. Like it doesn't feel like a Gilmore Girls episode kind of uh, (laughs) level of we're just like, okay, I love the Chud reference. Right, right. Like, but they're but they're so subtle. And like, there's a Goonies reference. But if you haven't seen the Goonies, you don't really lose anything. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think his style of writing in this movie in particular is really layered and cool. And I like saw stuff on this viewing I didn't realize on the first. And yeah, I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. What about you, Caitlin? I also saw it numerous times in theaters. The first time was with Jamie, our mutual friend, Bryant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to go to one of my favorite bars that I haven't been to in what feels like years now um, for obvious reasons. But afterwards, we were like, there's so much to talk about. So we went to this bar and uh, talked about the movie for like three hours. And we were just like, what did we just watch? Yeah. What did it all mean? Da-da-da. God, I miss doing that. <laughs> I know. And then I saw it again in theaters with my friend Nolan and, you know, we had a similar like hours long discussion afterward and both times, and I've also seen it about, I think four times now. Here's the thing. I'll be completely honest about this. I really, really like this movie for the first 90% of it. And then the last 10, 15 minutes or so, I, and this is completely from a screenwriting standpoint, it it loses me. I think some choices were made in the writing. I think this is a movie that you didn't need to explain where the tethered come from or what the origins are mm, and like different, that, yeah. like, like I think it would have served the story a little bit better if we had just not been given any explanation 
of the origins and and maybe that actually does something to mess up the intent of the allegory and stuff like that i'm not totally sure because i also don't really know what the allegory is supposed to be entirely and i don't, I don't think a lot either. of people know exactly because there's so many interpretations um but from a strictly screenwriting point of view i was like oh man i don't like that they tried to explain some of the stuff that i felt could have just been left unexplained but for the first again 90% of the movie I'm like this is awesome I love this family I love their journey I've come I've come around on the ending this was the first viewing where I'm like I think the because the, I felt the same way that you did but then I like weirdly yeah. turned a corner at some point where maybe I, I was reading I read a lot of new analysis that had come out since I last was seeking out analysis on this movie and Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm excited to talk about it because I've turned a corner yeah. on the ending of the movie. <laughs> and now I'm pro. <laughs> wow. I'm 50-50. I think it depends on the day. I'm like, yeah. on a Tuesday, I'm like, yeah, this is a great ending. But <laughs> catch me on a Thursday. Who knows? Who knows? Exactly. <laughs> this was also the first viewing of the movie, too, where I like... I had never really sought out any information on the music of this movie, but the the story mm. of like how the music was composed is really interesting as well. Michael and- Abels is an incredible composer. I love oh, him. I think he's great. One of my friends actually wrote a movie that Michael Abels did the music for that oh. came out in April. Yeah, it's called Bad Education. It's on HBO. Oh, and, I've seen that uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. That my, movie is awesome. Yeah, my friend Mike, different Mike than took me to this movie, though I did see Get Out <laughs> with the Mike who wrote Bad Education. Uh, yeah, my friend Mike wrote it. He's incredible. Love him to death. Oh, that's so... Everyone should watch Bad Education. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. That's so cool. Nice. But yeah, Michael Abels is just like a genius. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, we're... I don't know. Like, I... We don't talk about scoring very often on our feminist movie podcast which i guess fair enough <laughs> but there is like sure. there's just so much to talk about about how where he was pulling from and like i was i was like oh what are they saying in in the in the theme and it's nonsense it's nothing he made he made it up like i don't know there's so much cool stuff <laughs> well should we dive in with the recap let's do it all right so we open with text on the screen saying that there are thousands of miles of underground tunnels in the U.S. There are abandoned subways, service routes, mine shafts, and then others that have no known purpose at all. I love it. Except to be where the tethered live. Every time I watch the movie, I forget that that's the beginning because my brain has to forget that so that I can walk around on top of these tunnels. (laughs) (laughs) true, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, now it's like that every time you watch it, it's like you think about that nonstop for a week and then it just kind of leaves you. Mm-hmm. Until the next time and you're like, oh, no, the tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> because is that true? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there are a lot. I actually did some reading on tunnels and right around the time the movie came out, there was a book that was released. I can't remember the author. I didn't write it down because I was like, I'll remember. Sure. Um, (laughs) But it's called Underground and then it has a subtitle and it talks about all of the various tunnels that exist under major cities that are not being used and I shouldn't say are not being used. A lot of them are actually being occupied by people who are experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And uh, some some of them are in New York City. Some of them are in Chicago. Uh, There's some in Los Angeles. And I was like, no, don't tell me that. Like in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, There are tunnels that were possibly used by bootleggers, but were the Mm -hmm. original subway in Los Angeles before it shut down and then they made a new subway. So the original red line tunnels are just 
abandoned and oh, I didn't know that. Holy shit. I'm so curious how one would even get to one of these tunnels and figure that out. Right. Right. Whoa. You go down an escalator that is <laughs> on the other side of the door at a fun house of mirrors. Yeah, a well-maintained escalator. Mm, I love the escalator shot so much. Oh, goodness. Wow. All right. Yeah, so, so anyway, that's, that's the opening. <laughs> then we cut to a close-up on like an 80s-style TV. We see an ad for Hands Across America. And then we meet a little girl. Adelaide, aka Addie. The cutest child. Oh, She's I know. So Shout out sweet. to all the child actors in yeah. this movie because they all do a terrific job. Incredible. Yeah. So good. And and it also made me just appreciate Jordan Peele's directing again, where I know that he pulls a lot from Kubrick, who is like so notoriously a shitty person towards actors, but you can just tell like there were even certain shots because I think I've just like seen this movie enough times to notice the shot changes and stuff where you're like, oh, if that was Kubrick, he would have just let that kid walk into a mirror. But Jordan Peele cuts to another shot and is like, don't hurt yourself. It's okay. Like, I don't That was I don't know why I <laughs> extra noticed that this time. Yeah. So, so we, we meet Addie. It's 1986, which is the year I was born. Thank you so much, everybody. Yay. Um, yes. Actually, Hands Across America happened like a week after I was born. Um, I've just remembered how close you were born to Robert Pattinson as well when I was just Googling Robert Pattinson last night. Wait, is he my age? Yeah, I think he was born like the week, the same week as you. Oh my god, <gasps> Robert! Did he do Hands Across America? <laughs> <laughs> also, Winston Duke is like is my age. He's he's actually a few months younger than me. You so three should hang out. He... I will say that was the one thing for me where Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o do not seem old enough to have a teenage daughter. Yes, right? I yeah. agree. Like, on the first like four watches, I didn't think about it, and then afterwards, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait. Robert Pattinson, May thirteenth, eighty six. Whoa. Amazing. He's like four days older than me then. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Robert, let's get married. Because <laughs> that's how you know if you're compatible with someone, you have similar birthdays. Okay. <laughs> that's astrology. Um, so <laughs> Addie is with her parents at like the boardwalk, like carnival-y area in Santa Cruz, California. She wanders off and goes into this creepy house of mirrors where she encounters another little girl who appears to look exactly like her. And we're like, <gasps> and then smash cut to a close-up of a rabbit. And there's like this creepy chanting. Uh, and then we pull out to show hundreds of rabbits. That was the coolest scene to see in the theater ever. Because you, you're not expecting it. And you're just like, oh my God, there's there's more rabbits. And then there's even more rabbits. And then it's, and it's so long. And yeah. It's like they're telling you you're going to go down a rabbit hole. <gasps> Wowie. I had a lot of fun looking for like this really deep layered symbolism of the rabbits, which I did find. There's been a lot of writing mm. about it, but all I've been able to find from Jordan Peele is he's just like, I am personally afraid of rabbits. <laughs> and you're <laughs> like, oh, cool. It doesn't always have to mean something. <laughs> nope. Sometimes, sometimes uh, Alfonso Cuaron is like, oh yeah. The reason that green is a prominent color in The Little Princess is because I like the color green. The end. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, it's your movie. <laughs> I guess you could do whatever you want. Um, okay, the rabbits, and then we cut to adult Adelaide, who's played by Lupita Nyong'o, and she has a husband, Gabe. That's Winston Duke. Uh, a teenage daughter, Zora, and a younger son, Jason. 
this family, the Wilsons, arrive at their summer home that is not far from Santa Cruz, California. Then we flash back to Addie as a child. Her parents have brought her to a child psychologist because she hasn't spoken since she went into this house of mirrors. Mm -hmm. But we don't know why. We assume she's been traumatized by this interaction with this other doppelganger girl. Then we cut back to the present. Um, the family goes to the beach in Santa Cruz. Again, it's the same one where this incident happened. They meet their friends, Kitty and Josh, played by Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker. Who you don't think are going to work as a couple until they do. Until they do. <laughs> it just do- it just <laughs> does work. But also, I'm like, they have teen... Elizabeth Moss do- can't have a 17-year-old daughter, I don't... Huh? Whatever. Oh, yeah. I guess I don't know how old she is. I mean, she has... She's had work done, so I guess maybe we're supposed to think that she's older than she looks. That's true. Not... The character Kitty has had work done. I am not... No one sue me for accusing Elizabeth Moss of having work done. (laughs) Yeah, because she's 38. I mean, I guess if she... Which means she would have been like 36 or 7. Doesn't matter. They have teenage twins. It's true. Becca and Lindsay are their names. So they're on the beach. Jason sees this scary guy on the beach. His like hand is dripping with blood. Adelaide freaks out because she thinks Jason has gone missing. And there's all these other like weird coincidences that are happening with like spiders and frisbees and eleven eleven make a wish. <laughs> and I know eleven eleven is bad in this. I was like, wait, it's not a junior high school student making a wish. <laughs> can't relate because it's a biblical reference yeah that i don't remember the exact passage. jeremiah mm-hmm. 11 11 mm-hmm. and i believe it was jeremiah again i was like i'll remember that i don't need to write that one down i'm i'm over two <laughs> i've got a little uh, analysis section on the on the the bible verses because i'm not I'm not very uh, Bible literate myself, but someone was um, someone on the great wide internet was kind enough to break it down. We'll, we'll get nice. Yeah, I, cool. I think that I'm not super Bible literate. I will say my favorite translation is definitely King James because I think it slaps and like the New International Version. I'm just like, oh, this is boring. Where's the poetry? Where's Keep the smiting? Moving. <laughs> King James keeps it moving, and I appreciate that. But I think the gist of the Jeremiah 11:11 passage is uh, y'all are going to cry out and I'm not going to do shit. Love you, God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is, yeah, the, the cliff's nose. And then if you go back a verse to Jeremiah 11:10, there, it's all like sins of the ancestors, sins of the father. And it's like for certain reads of this movie, like I, if you're like, oh, I think Jordan Peele may have read back a verse or two. <laughs> hmm. Who knows? Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that night, they're back at home, and Adelaide tells Gabe about the night that she saw a little girl who looked just like her when she was a child, and that her, how her whole life, she felt that she's been coming for her, and that all these little coincidences that have been happening to her, it feels like this person is getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, they lose power, and then Jason is like, by the way, there's a family in our driveway. And sure enough, there's a family in their driveway. True enough. And this family invades the Wilson home, and they realize that it's them. It's Adelaide, Gabe, Zora, and Jason, but it's like scary doppelganger versions of them who are wearing red jumpsuits and carrying scissors. 
Now, scary doppelganger Adelaide, aka Red, explains that Adelaide and Red are tethered together. Everything that Adelaide did in her life, Red also did, but like a horrible version of it. So instead of eating warm meals and playing with nice toys, she ate rabbits and had sharp toys. Instead of falling in love and getting married and starting a family, Red was forced to do these things. Mm -hmm. And now she wants to become untethered. And the way to do that is by killing Adelaide and her family. The pairs of the doppelgangers kind of break off. There's fighting, there's chasing, there are injuries. There's and it's the all... boat scene. I love the there's boat the... scene. Oh. I'm obsessed with the boat. I love that the <laughs> boat is called the Crawdaddy. All the boats have great names in this. Um, Josh's boat is called the Biyacht. Yes. Like it's Biyacht, but with yacht in the middle. <laughs> Um, and then I love how Winston Duke's character, uh, Gabe, when he's like, oh, this is a home invasion. Okay, just give them what they want. Protect our bodily stuff and then just give them whatever they want. He's like, you can have the boat. And, <laughs> and uh, the, the daughter is like, dad, no one no wants one the wants boat. To. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. She's like crushed. Like tears are streaming down her face. She's like, shut up, dad. No one wants your boat. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there's all these altercations, but the Wilsons eventually manage to get away in the boat, and they head over to Josh and Kitty's, who, surprise, also have scary doppelgangers who have killed that whole family. Mm -hmm. So when Adelaide and her family show up to Josh and Kitty's, they have to fight scary tim heidecker and scary elizabeth moss <laughs> which i think are the character names yes <laughs> they do they have been given names like on imdb and yeah. like in the script but i don't think we ever hear those ones yeah. said it's like out. tex yeah. and dahlia yeah and something else mm-hmm. so the wilsons managed to kill them and the twin daughters and stuff and then they turn on the tv and they learn that there are many many more of these doppelgangers basically everyone alive on earth or at least in the u.s seems to have uh, a doppelganger in the u.s or the us the us caitlin <laughs> think about it it makes you think <laughs> And so the doppelgangers have been killing their above ground counterparts and then gathering and holding hands, not unlike Hands Across America. Mm. So the Wilson family takes off. They head to back to the boardwalk area because they're going to like drive. The plan is to drive to Mexico along the coast, but they get interrupted because Jason, scary Jason is there, a.k.a. Pluto. Mm. But it's a trap that enables Red to kidnap Jason, she takes him underground via the House of Mirrors. So Adelaide goes in after him and she ends up deep underground. We see the dwelling, you know, these tunnels where the tethered have been living. She finds Red, who explains that the tethered are like clones or copies of people, but they don't have souls. They were created. There's like the illusions of sort of like science experiment gone wrong, but it was failed and the clones or the copies were abandoned, but they kind of just had to live on remaining tethered to their above ground counterparts. Uh, as this is happening, we get flashbacks where we see... Yeah, we're getting into the the twist is moment. But yes. Yes, yeah, so we're seeing like Addie as a kid and Red as a kid. 
and the carnival and how they sort of came together and met up. But the tethered were like, oh, look at this little girl. She's going to be the one to save us from this misery. And Red explains how, you know, she had orchestrated this whole movement where they would rise above and kill their above ground counterparts. The untethering, she calls it. The untethering. And then you see this cool montage where they get their suits and you're like, where'd they get the suits? Where'd they, where'd they get the scissors? Where'd, where'd they, they get, get, the, get the, suits? the suits? Where'd they get the shoes? <laughs> there might be manufacturing down there. We don't we don't really know what the what the system is like. Could be. Hmm. And then Adelaide and Red fight. Most of the time Red has the upper hand. The score really shines here. And then Adelaide finally kills Red and rescues Jason. They're back above ground. The Wilson family reunites and then we get a flashback where the big twist is revealed. We see Adelaide and Red when they have met in the House of Mirrors as children. And we see that Red captured Adelaide, switched places with her, so that Addie has actually been a tethered this whole time. And Red was actually little Addie the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then we zoom out and we see that the tethered are holding hands across America. And then that is the end of... There are helicopters. What are they doing? Who's piloting them? (laughs) Who? Is is it tethereds? I don't know. We don't know. I don't know. (laughs) All that and more we'll discuss. (laughs) Uh, But first we're going to take a break and then we'll come right back. It's almost here. The NYX anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. 
I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Where to begin? Where to begin? I here's I here's here's a fact that's just uh, pure fun. Sure. I get you know you know how at the beginning um, they're talking when they're on the um, the boardwalk in the eighties they're like oh I think a movie is shooting around here it's the Lost Boys mm. yes it's the Lost Boys oh fun. that is yeah. fun Kiefer Sutherland oh, was there huh. I was like oh that's a that's Jordan Peele hides so much cool stuff in here that I was like wait that's the last boys oh his little easter eggs which the the little rabbits what if what if those are just a bunch of little easter bunnies hiding all the easter eggs around his movies you love to Amazing. find them so that's that um anything else we want to discuss or <laughs> <laughs> nope uh the end i found it interesting this time re-watching it i well i re-watched it twice before we talked because why not <laughs> and i realized on the second rewatch for this discussion that it was Addie's birthday when they were at the boardwalk Ooh. which was not something i had picked up on in any other viewing right yes because uh he he wins her her dad wins her the thriller mm-hmm. shirt right and, or she's like having to pick what prize and then her mom's like it's your birthday you do whatever you want yeah yeah mm-hmm I'm just like, what a day. What an intense birthday. Bad birthday. It made me wonder, do the tethered have any concept of birthdays? Like, they have to understand what they are because there's, it's a mirror. So whatever we're doing above ground, they're doing right. underground. Mm-hmm. So it's like. They're just doing a t- the, the like worst case scenario version. So I guess that they would have worst case scenario birthdays. Yeah. I, I guess so. I mean, Red mentions Christmas. She's like, on Christmas, I opened my toys and they were sharp and cold and cut my fingers when I played with them. So I think they get the concept of holidays. Yeah. But Red also was an above ground person before. So that also. That's true. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything. <laughs> and I love that I don't know anything. It's so much to explore. It's like tunnels of m- movie reference and so many tunnels. <laughs> also in that um, that sequence on the boardwalk, there's so I, I'll I'll just go back and hit the Bible verse really quick. Well, because we were just talking about it anyways. Mm-hmm. So you see an unhoused uh, man on the pier holding a sign that says Jeremiah eleven eleven, which says, uh, I mean, Chroma, I think you honestly. <laughs> 
uh, summarize it pretty well. It says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape, although they will cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then if you go back a verse, it says in Jeremiah 1.10, they have returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Don't know what hmm. the last sentence is, but the read that I feel closest to on this viewing, and again, it's like changed over time, but the the view, I've, the, the read of the movie that I feel closest to on this day, I felt like finding mm-hmm. out that verse was really helpful in kind of solidifying that. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think before we maybe dive into the the nitty gritty of all of the the readings and the symbolism and allegories and things, I kind of wanted to touch on the way that horror movies have historically treated black people and black characters, um, because you wouldn't believe what it. What are you talking about? But it's, it's been great. terrible. <laughs> Um, There's a really good documentary called Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, that's a Shudder original documentary. Um, So I would recommend watching that to the listeners. But it does a deep dive of this. But basically, a very brief overview of the representation of black characters in cinema historically again has been terrible uh there's a long history of black men in particular being shown as villains who brutalize white women a lot of that was white actors in blackface there is a long history of the magical negro trope being used in horror films there's the widely known trope that we referenced earlier that gets called out in scream 2 and then acted out (laughs) Anyways. And then and then and then followed through on where in an ensemble horror movie where there's a bunch of people who die throughout the story, there's often one black person in the cast and they are often the first to die. So there's different things like that. That's only kind of the tip of the iceberg. So a movie like Us, a movie like Get Out, a movie like the upcoming Candyman. I'm very excited for it. Well, they're not. I know. I'm so excited for it. While they are not the first movies to subvert all of these problems, they are pretty unique in that they don't fall into all these tropes. And you'll never guess why. It's because they are made by black filmmakers. So... Just wanted to, again, just acknowledge the really reprehensible history in terms of representation of black characters in horror films, because mm-hmm. it's been real bad. Yeah. Uh, not that non-white filmmakers have been forced to enact these tropes. They have just uh, continued to make the choice. And I think it's also marketing. It's like, mm, I don't know. Are people going to go for a black final girl? Who's mm. to say? It's like, I, I would. Right. Yeah, I like those movies. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like Us and Get Out were enormous box office successes. Yeah, I mean, it's and Karama, you probably have more thoughts than we do, because we every year when we do our month of horror, we're like, we don't know enough about horror. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't want to say I'm like a horror expert. I am an, an I'm an enjoyer of horror and I I've loved it since I was a kid. 
Uh, it is not something that was handed down to me. Neither of my parents enjoy horror films. I was like, Mom, will you watch Us with me? And she was like, no, I'm good. Because <laughs> she, saw, she saw Get Out and that was scary for her. She was like, I heard this one's scarier. And I'm like, yeah. much. And she said, no, thanks. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting that I just sort of adopted that on my own and was like, yeah, this is cool. I love the the, the creepy crawlies and the killing and the monsters. I think that horror as a genre is great because it allows, and I think that there's a really big love of horror in a lot of black communities, despite the treatment of black people on screen mm -hmm. in horror, because it is a safe space to be mm -hmm. afraid. And you know, two hours, this is what's gonna happen. And it's very, it's almost like law and order and procedural television where you know what the beats mm -hmm. are gonna be. Yeah. And it's like very safe and formulaic, but still good and still fresh and interesting in various ways. And like the, the different monsters that are gonna come and kill you. Like, ooh, this one's a haunted lake man. And this one <laughs> is a child molester that's been burned. And <laughs> this one mm -hmm. The is... one that we see all the time. Something that has a vagina for a head. Uh... Oh, yep, yep. <laughs> It always has a, a lovely little little vulva head, and it's like, I'm coming for you. Women are scary. Oh, you're just like, oh, my God. Take movies away from men today. Um, no vulva heads in this movie, and so you do have to, you do have to hand it to uh, the restraint of Jordan Peele. That's true. Um, but, I mean, but what is going down into underground, into tunnels, but going into a vagina? Going into the earth's womb the guy, yes. makes you think what i liked because this the the way that this movie plays out does inspire so much conversation and i feel like it is almost one of those movies that and it seems like in interviews that jordan peele kind of wanted it to be like this that how you read the ending kind of like says more about you than it says about the movie which is always kind of fun and terrifying to engage with yeah but in terms of like flipping horror tropes here where horror like you're saying karma is so built around i don't know what what scares the filmmaker and in theory for horror movies that do well what scare the audience at a certain point in time and taking the idea of the other and i watched a there's a really good analysis of this movie from the take hmm. which is just like an analysis youtube channel where basically they make the point that the general horror uh, formula is to take the other and reoppress them by the end of the movie. So, with the example of like Michael Myers, he is the othered villain of this movie. Mm -hmm. And then the victory at the end is to oppress him further than he was at the beginning of the movie because he's bad. Cute. Uh, and so, what's cool and like also like scrambles your brain about this movie is that you it's unclear who like who deserves what in this where it's like mm -hmm. the surface read of the movie is oh we love this family they're not doing anything wrong that we're seeing that is like they're not outwardly bad people mm -hmm. but their existence is like it's just it it fucks with your head but I do like messing around with that. There is not a clear cut hero or villain to these families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find uh, the more I watch it, the less I'm sure in that 
pas de deux scene, um, which I love. I love the sort of dance read of it because as I've told you too, I love dance movies. I love them so much. And it's like, oh, I get a little mini dance movie in the in my little scary movie. It's beautiful um, too. Yeah. It is gorgeous. And the orchestration of this sort of classical version of I Got Five on it is just yeah. chef's kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know who should win. And at the end, I'm like, the first time, watching it i was like yes amazing we beat the bad person Mm -hmm. and then i was like oh no because you get that reveal at the end and then watching it every subsequent time i'm like i don't is this good is this who's good i never know how to feel i at this point i'm like i'm like team tether i love the family (laughs) but i'm like if this is so like the read of the movie that i feel closest to right now is the story being like this allegory for basically like the unacknowledged guilt of living in a colonial society and Mm -hmm. in America specifically, which the more I watched this movie and the more I read the hints of that are everywhere, not just in interviews Jordan Peele has done about it, where he says literally, quote, one of the central themes in us is that we can do a good job collectively of ignoring the ramifications of privilege. Mm -hmm. And he's referencing the privilege of being a modern American but even from like really early in the movie when she walks into the hall of mirrors that hall of mirrors when you look at and listen to what's happening in there is the basically cowboy American presentation of false history that we all learn um, as it pertains to indigenous people in America where it's like every lazy harmful stereotype is being laid out just in the background of this Mm -hmm. scene yeah it's called like shaman's vision quest and it's imagery of like a native and you'll Mm -hmm. you'll if you're paying attention also at the end of the movie that has been changed Mm -hmm. it's now Mm -hmm. merlin's forest or something Mm -hmm. like that but it's still the same thing and you can see it's just been literally the same thing over Yeah. yeah and uh when you when we see adelaide walk in Uh, We hear this audio, and I always watch everything with subtitles. Drag me if you want. I love subtitles. No, we're the same, yeah. Um, And I don't understand why people hate subtitles so much. Like, if you don't want them, that's fine. But don't hate on me for using them. Yeah. Because I get extra layers. (laughs) They're incredible. But you get information about these uh, Hopi, uh, like, mythological characters. And so Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, we're going to root this in this and... Yeah, if we use these names that we barely researched, it'll be fine. And uh, while Mm -hmm. I was doing research, because I was like, oh, who are these names and where do they come from? I read something that said that all Hopi mythology that has been shared with non-Hopi people might just be fake stuff that they tell us, uh, which I love. (laughs) They're just like, yeah, yeah, this is what we believe. um, And that there is a sort of layered level of mythology where there's what's shared with outsiders and then there's stuff that's never shared with outsiders so i find it interesting that these characters are from the like foreigner friendly version of hopi mythology that's Mm -hmm. incredible yeah i didn't i didn't know i mean and i honestly on my first i think like at least on my first two viewings of this i didn't really pick up on that but this time it's like another one of those things where like the subtext is there and if you engage with it it's like a more a better way to engage with the movie. Yeah. So yeah, if we're if we're reading it, so I guess coming at it from the idea of it being from this entrenched 
basically like there being more than one America and what we're presented with at the, at the beginning of the movie is a very comfortable middle-class life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what is happening. And, and so I'm trying to think of the way to like articulate this correctly, but essentially it, it seems like this movie is playing on for every person that has it, that comes with a cost. You don't just get that. And the direct allegory happening here is like for us to have what we have, someone that we don't know and very possibly are willfully ignoring the existence of entirely are suffering for us to have the lifestyle that we have, which is true and horrifying to consider. And I really like that Jordan Peele writes likable characters so that it's not like oh well like these characters are like awful and suck and it's like no they're good people they love their family they're like living their lives but just like us a lot of the time just are in complete ignorance to well how do you have this lifestyle and who upholds it and and whose labor um, affords you to have what you have right Yes, I too, that is my read of the film. Because there's a few different ones that have been posited. You know, people are like, okay, is it about, you know, the socioeconomic class and privilege divide, which is like what we're talking about. There's the, is it about like the duality of one's self as an individual? Is it about, you know, how Americans are so polarized politically at this moment during like the Trump presidency? There's plenty of reads and I see like merit in all of them. But yeah, as far as the one that I am closest to, like you said, Jamie, is the one that we've just described. I am also on board that I I think that it's the same thing. I feel like you have to look at what Peel is giving us. And it's there's so much stuff about that native imagery, like even when they're on the beach and Kitty's in a, looking at a magazine, there's an ad with a native headdress. And she's like, oh, that's so pretty and just moves mm. on from it really quickly. Mm. But I just like that stuck out to me the first time I watched it. I was like, wait, you can't ignore that. It has to be about that especially knowing that the shining is a movie that jordan peele just absolutely adores draws a lot of influence from Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the whole thing about that was this sort of haunted indian burial ground trope and this feels like a reversal of that where instead of being cursed because you're living on top of dead indigenous people the bad luck comes from living on top of alive people who are just like you but speak another language that you can't understand and we are tethered to these indigenous people whose land we've built on top of. Right. Mm-hmm. Jordan Peele, I'm realizing everything I just said, Jordan Peele has obviously said a much more intelligent version of. So <laughs> uh, I just wanted to read a quote r- from him that there's a few different reads. It's kind of funny because it's, I wonder if you both feel the same way. I felt like when the movie first came out, it was a little harder to find quotes where Jordan Peele was explicitly saying like, well, this is what I was trying to do because he seemed to want the audience to have the discussion. Mm-hmm. And then, but there are like in the year since I have like read about it, he's talked about it pretty extensively. And now it feels like his, um, his thesis statement is out there where it kind of wasn't at the beginning, mm-hmm. but to continue the quote I was reading from earlier, which is from uh, the like DVD of us 
so he says uh, one of the central themes in us is that we can do a good job collectively of ignoring the ramifications of privilege. I think it's the idea that we that what we feel like we deserve comes, you know, at the expense of someone else's freedom or joy. You know, the biggest disservice we can do as a faction with a collective privilege like the United States is to presume that we deserve it and that it isn't luck that has us born where we're born. For us to have our privilege, someone suffers. That's where the tethered connection, I think, resonates the most, is that those who suffer and those who prosper are two sides of the same coin. You can never forget that. We need to fight for the less fortunate. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of his thesis statement, which also makes the doppelganger even more resonant and cool and it it like really hits on that point of like we are no different it's like what made uh lupita who lives above ground and lupita who lives below ground different not much to the point where when they swapped no one knew like no one noticed and it was like the circumstance that they were born into that shaped who they became in so many ways Right. You get the sense that it it just took red after emerging back above ground. And sorry. Yeah, I keep saying upstairs, Lupita, downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) I get what you mean. Um, She basically it seems like it takes her maybe a few weeks or months to assimilate. But she starts dancing and she starts like, I suppose, learning to speak. Mm -hmm. And and then she is indistinguishable from all the other upstairs people the non-tethereds you know so yeah it's just commentary on like if you are in a position of privilege if you have access to things that you need to be comfortable you have a boat called the the b the what is it the, the crawdaddy biatch? oh the b yeah the, the biatch <laughs> yeah <laughs> I always forget. That's another thing that I just like always forget. And then I see it again. I was like, oh, right. That's the name of Tim Heidecker's boat. (laughs) I love the competition that sort of happens between Winston Duke and Tim Heidecker and these Mm. two families and just even above ground before we really get to the underground people, the levels of privilege between them. And they're both these middle class families. Like there's no... No one can argue that the Wilsons are not doing well. They have a summer home. Their kids they are... They drive a Mercedes. Yeah, their their kids are doing after-school activities and magic tricks and fun things. <laughs> like, they're okay. Yeah. Um, they have... I love the sticker that they have on the back of the car that's, like, their little family yeah. sticker. Yeah. Which I don't understand why anybody has those because then people know they can follow you and then murder your children. That's how I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the Tethered found them. They're like, that. That's <laughs> this, is, this is the family. They have the sticker and this is how we know that they live here. Yeah. They shouldn't have been giving away their coordinates like that. I think about <laughs> that every time I post, like, back in the before times when you would post as like a comic you would just post your location every mm-hmm. single night yeah i'm just mm-hmm. like this is, would be a great way to get killed like <laughs> just thinking out loud or like the yeah. the bling ring that's how the bling ring happened mm. in real life because celebrities would be like going on vacation and then those teenage kids from the valley were like what if we robbed paris hilton um, <laughs> so anyway oh i digress um i think that i love though the difference between this white family and this black family that are ostensibly the same in that they're both living these privileged middle-class American lives, but we Mm -hmm. see the sort of slight disparities and the jealousy and like the nicer boat and the newer car and -hmm. stuff like that. And how Winston Duke is just like, Oh, I really want to one up him and get to him. It's like, I got a boat, but he has flares on his boat and I don't have flares on my boat. 
And I thought it was kind of also a fun touch that it's like the families get along, but they don't seem to actually like each other that much. Like, nope. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They're not close. That you get the sense that they see each other once a year when they're both vacationing together, and that's it. And also, okay, so I was thinking about this where the Wilsons seem to own their family home, mm-hmm. but I think the other family of Kitty and Josh, they're like Airbnb or like they have a timeshare or something. Cause he says like, we need to get out of here. So even though it's a nicer house, it's like, it's almost like the illusion of them doing better. Cause they have, Ooh. they're only yeah. renting this nicer house for a short amount of time. Cause he's like, Oh, we have to be out of here by 10 AM tomorrow as if it's a rental versus the Wilsons owning their so it's like I don't know it's like there's a there's this illusion that they're doing better but maybe they aren't even that's interesting I didn't read that as an Airbnb rental I read that as a kids take too long I have a meeting I need to I need to leave by 10 a.m so less as a checkout time and more as a all right you Um, gremlins could be that um but I didn't think about it that way and I think that could be true I yeah yeah, that's, I suppose, open to interpretation. Like much of the movie. Yeah, I, I like the kind of, like, subtle friction that you see between these families, where, especially between the, the two uh, fathers, mm-hmm. where, I don't know, I mean, I feel like it's something you see, but especially because it's between a, a white middle-class family and a black middle-class family, yep. that friction, there's, like, kind of another dimension to it as well, and it's not one I've ever... you really see in movies that much at all mm-hmm. that's to me Gabe is a very interesting character because mm-hmm. like was mentioned when the tethered first show up and invade their home Gabe he's like trying to reason with them and saying like we don't have much here this is our summer home but you can have my wallet you can have my money we can go to an ATM you can have the car you can have the boat you know he's trying to like his values are these like material possessions and that's what he thinks is going to be valuable to the tethereds. And they're just like, I don't give a shit about your money. Like we're here Mm. to kill you. Yeah. No, we want to end this connection that's been happening that you've been blissfully unaware of. Right. The friction between these two families makes me wonder how they know each other because Mm. I don't think it's from college, which is kind of the generic assumption because uh, Winston Duke's character, Gabe, he has a Howard University sweatshirt on. And Mm -hmm. something about Tim Heidecker's character just doesn't read to me as white person who went to Howard. It just, (laughs) I'm not getting that vibe. (laughs) Can you imagine though, (laughs) that was the case? (laughs) I would would be fascinated to see that first semester. Just that one. I don't want to see anything beyond that and hope there's a transfer after that. Not because of white people, <laughs> because of that particular white person. Uh, <laughs> um, so I was curious because, like you said, it seemed like they see each other annually because there's that mm-hmm. line that uh, Addie has where she says, you look the same as you did last year when the plastic mm-hmm. surgery is discussed. So it's like, who are these people to each other? And what is the positive of their relationship? Because it just seems like they're there to compete. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah, like it, I I really, I, I never really like thought about their relationships to each other too, too much before preparing for this episode. And even it's like the kids clearly 
have no interest in each other. It seems yeah. like the twins only talk to each other. They're like, Jason's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're they're clearly not even like summertime friends. <laughs> and Zora is like has her headphones in. She has no interest in the, the chaotic Heidecker twins or whatever. Uh <laughs> So it is like it is, fa- and also it's kind of she does not hesitate to kill the shit out of them when they're. Uh, it felt when, like when she liked it. Later. She definitely was like getting some sort of catharsis from killing these twins. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, based on what we see of those twins, I get it. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and the relationship between um, Adelaide and Kitty, I also think is pretty interesting where I mean again it's like they don't have I think Kitty is like kind of doing a a fakey attempt to connect with Adelaide um and I kind of appreciate how Adelaide's like yeah I don't eh." yeah we don't have to be chatting right now yeah but I like I I thought it was kind of cool that there was some commentary into how particularly Kitty's story plays out I feel like more so than anyone else than anyone else in the Tyler family I feel like Kitty is the one character that you kind of see something in her tether that is like reflective of like oh if we're seeing this as like the haves and the have-nots on which America is built the scene where Kitty's tether, whose name is Dahlia, Dahlia? Mm-hmm. pretty name. Uh, <laughs> so Dahlia has this moment where we heard earlier that Kitty has had like some work done, whatever. Mm-hmm. Judgment isn't passed either way, but it just is a fact. Yeah. Um, but then um, Dahlia, who has been playing out the actions of kitty her entire existence we're assuming like finally has that moment of like holding that lip gloss and it looks really scary and like elizabeth moss is scary as hell in this role and i Uh i just i love her she i really like her in this movie as well but you get that moment of, of like oh this is what i have been suffering for is for this other woman to look like this and then you see her cut her face open which I, I'm pretty sure is a reference to Kitty's procedures and mm-hmm. like it all it, it's, every time I look at that scene I'm like okay girl joker we get it but like uh, <laughs> you want to know how I got these scars <laughs> but it is a little bit girl joker the way it plays out <laughs> yeah oh it is very girl joker like very dark night girl joker but i yeah noticing the scars on her face the second time i watched the movie i was like oh she had to do her own plastic surgery underground that's terrifying <sighs> right and i always get a little like iffy around uh male filmmakers making comments on uh women getting plastic surgery but it didn't feel i don't know i just i don't know i didn't end up being really bothered by it in this particular movie it didn't mm-hmm. feel to me like a judgment of plastic surgery it felt more right. of a judgment on these layers and how if you choose to do this to yourself do you think about the consequence to the other person so it was right. less about like objective surgery bad surgery good and more um, consequences bad and uh, thinking and conscientiousness good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, let's take another quick break and then we'll come right back.
It's almost here. The NYX Anniversary Sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to talk a bit about just kind of like the characters as individuals, Mm -hmm. starting with Addie, coming at it just from a what do the characters do in the story as it pertains to like their actions in the context of being in this horror movie. Because, and we've talked about this on various episodes in the past where women in horror movies will kind of be stripped of agency a lot of the time or 
they'll be and again i'm always like worried about sounding victim blaming when i talk about this but they'll they'll be like kind of flailing around and there's a killer right there and they seem completely oblivious of their impending doom and just like different things like that where female characters were often just written to seem oblivious of their surroundings for whatever reason and then they get killed about it so this is sort of <laughs> where, where uh, what we're used to seeing as horror-going audiences. So that you have Addie taking charge and making active choices and knowing what danger she's in and knowing, anticipating what's going to happen. And we see her fighting and we see her you know, knowing that there are the, there's this scary family outside, let's call the cops immediately. Meanwhile, Gabe is like, no, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to exert my, you know, masculinity at them and maybe scare them off. And then that doesn't work. So then he goes out again, this time with a weapon. Breaks his leg. And gets his knee broken. <laughs> right. So yeah. like, meanwhile, like Addie's like, I've already called the cops. And we know that that's not going to do anything, of course. And then, of course, that they cops never show up in this movie. Well, I think they yeah. all got stabbed by tethers in the cops' defense. Like, there was a lot <laughs> happening. I think that all, if it had just been one family that had tethers coming, I think the cops maybe would have come eventually. Eventually, Yeah, maybe. like two yeah. hours later, perhaps. <laughs> the, but I, I do think it is cool, and especially the, the um, dynamic between... Gabe in Adelaide where I think that he has and we were kind of talking about it with how he relates to Tim Heidecker's character but he definitely has like this need to appear to be the dominant figure in the family when if you know the second you watch the family interact you know that Adelaide is the one that makes the decisions and the way their relationship is is like she doesn't necessarily need the credit for making the decisions but she's making them and Mm -hmm. that is like how how the story plays out down to like those subtle moments that happen between uh Gabe and Adelaide and then also happens uh right before the tethers arrive at the other house at the Tyler house where a wife goes to her husband and says (laughs) something isn't right I know something isn't right something Mm -hmm. is going to go wrong and then the husband is like baby 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 relax everything's fine everything's great it's good let's listen to the beach boys and or let's just go to sleep or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and which is i mean i guess kind of like a horror classic of like don't believe women and then immediately (laughs) get killed or injured yeah which i there's a converse of that between adelaide and gabe which i found was i thought was really interesting and thought was handled better than what we see in most movies where So, you know, a lot of movies will have something that happens out of this world and that would be difficult to believe probably by most people. Mm -hmm. It happens to the character, the character tells someone else about it, and then because it is difficult to believe, the other character is always like, I don't believe you. (laughs) And I, and classic. (laughs) Yep. Amazing performance by me. Thank you so much. Um, (laughs) This happens with Adelaide where she's like, Gabe, I as a kid I had this experience I feel like this person is coming after me she's I feel like she's getting closer and he's a little dismissive where he's like well you know you were in a house of mirrors are you sure it wasn't your reflection and she's like no it was real she's explaining all this stuff 
And then she realized she's like, you don't believe me. And he's like, I do. I'm just processing. And I can't believe you kept this inside for so long. And then he makes a really joke in bad taste about it. Like a domestic violence joke. And then he's like, oh, that was a bad joke. Sorry, just trying to lighten the mood. And I feel like that I just liked that exchange because in most cases you just get like you'd be like I don't believe you you're being hysterical or whatever and then yeah there's like, no possible way that happened what are you crazy yeah. should I call the doctor mm-hmm. the yellow wallpaper right. <laughs> yeah but then Gabe Gabe comes at it I feel like because Caitlin and I have talked about this a bunch of like how sometimes when a male character is being dismissive towards a woman or, or being kind of cruel, whether they mean mm-hmm. to or not, that it's presented in a very broad way mm-hmm. that a male viewer could not really see themselves in. But in this, it's like, I mean, I've been in that type of situation recently of just yeah. like someone being like, it's okay. No, it's like what i don't know what it's called a soft neg i don't know what i would call the situation <laughs> sure but but something that is certainly recognizable behavior mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he's not dismissive but he is he's like he says he's processing he's trying to figure out what this could have been and then 2 seconds later he would have to realize that she is was telling the truth and this did happen to her because who shows up on their doorstep but a family that looks exactly like them so yeah i just i thought that was interesting that way that was handled it felt like it was handled with a lot more nuance than it normally is so i appreciated that and winston duke just is great he's so he's like the funniest perform like just he's great he's amazing But in terms of Adelaide making decisions and not needing credit for them, I thought that was spot on. And uh, we see sort of a reversal from that when they're Mm -hmm. in Josh and Kitty's house. And he's like, we should stay here. We've got the backup generator. We've got Mm -hmm. food. We're safe. And she's like, really? Are we safe? You don't get to make the decisions anymore. And she's like, look, I've been making decisions and I've been fine with letting you think that it's happening. But she's just like, this is enough. I'm not going to die for your masculinity. We're going to take my advice and we're going to Mexico. (laughs) Because his pitch was like, let's do home alone. Let's set some traps (laughs) and do a home alone thing. And she's like, really? Did you just really reference home alone right now? And then, of course, the kids are like, what's home alone? What are micro machines? Yeah, the kids are like, (laughs) we are young. That is old. What is reference? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, really? You don't know what Home Alone is? Everyone knows what Home Alone is. I was working with a kid once who was in, I think, ninth grade last year. So he's like 16. Had never seen The Little Mermaid. Had never heard of The Little Mermaid. So, yeah. And I was astonished. Yeah. I was like, what? This is a classic. But it's also very old at this point. It's dated. Yeah. It's generating. Damn. We are simply old. So I believe they didn't know what Home Alone was. (laughs) there there is and then i i on the inverse of of that i like how i mean i i think the child actors in this movie are really really talented and 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 well directed but even the way those characters are written i felt like was unusual in a way i really liked where i feel because you sort of get to know who adelaide and gabe are pretty quickly I liked that it seemed like their daughter kind of took after Gabe a little more and that 
Jason took a little more after Adelaide. I feel like that is not something you see in movies a lot. It's usually like daughter is like mother, son is like father because Mm -hmm. gender binary. Where (laughs) you can see, I think especially in Zora, you can see like both of her parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in in Jason to have a younger son character who is like very sensitive and Mm -hmm. seems like resembles a lot. I think it's just kind of uh, very much like how Addie was when she was a kid I thought was really cool you don't Mm -hmm. usually get to see a mother-son relationship that is like a mirror in in that way usually I feel like it's a little more gender like normative and strict about who resembles who in their actions for sure I think the fact that Jason is sensitive and different in many ways is one of the reasons that this big theory has come about where Jason is secretly a tethered and um, I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you were familiar with that theory and what you two thought about that. I read a Vaguely? little bit about it, but as soon I I was reading in it in the same moment that I was also reading that Jordan Peele had completely dismissed that as yeah. a possibility. So I like didn't even I'm like, yeah, I, I don't think so. I remember that was one of the first I think one of the first popular theories I encountered after seeing the movie the first time and was like, wait, what uh, what <laughs> there it's interesting i think like if you like draw that out it is kind of interesting mm-hmm. but i think that yeah. yeah it holds very little water jordan peele was like what no stop it um and, <laughs> but i think it's interesting that this sensitivity and difference instead of just being like a sensitive boy was like no he must be a nightmare person from underground who's been replaced so right. yeah <laughs> I don't like the implications of the theory. Yeah, that's how little leeway we're willing to give young boys in our society to be sort of soft. Right. Right, yeah. like it has to be it has to be a conspiracy. <laughs> well, speaking of some other gender normative stuff, here's like one of the few things that bumped me a little bit was so they the family has decided after killing like evil Josh and Kitty in that family. Addie's like, we have to be on the move again. We have to leave. We have to run. And they realize they don't have the car keys that they need. So Addie goes back Mm -hmm. inside and she realizes that one of the twins is still alive. Now, Addie is holding a fireplace poker (laughs) tool that we have seen her used before as a weapon. She's right by the sink, and she so she's realizing that one of the twins is about to like pounce on her. So she grabs a frying pan, even though she's already holding holding the poker, oh, yeah. and then uses the frying pan to hit the twin with. And we've talked countless times on the podcast about how oftentimes women, if they are allowed to fight back or use a weapon at all, it is often some sort of domestic item often specifically a frying pan i will argue though it's like i thought that too but then i'm like but then i was like wait a second fire poker i mean it's not it's not like as over the top as a frying pan but i'm like Mm -hmm. that's kind of a household object as well like it is but it doesn't have necessarily like the same it's not the gender make my sandwich implication yeah (laughs) right to me it felt a little bit more neutral so but then i was just like why would she grab a frying pan she's already holding this weapon which she continues to hold and fight like that's how she kills yeah that's what she uses to fight red with at the end and stuff so mm-hmm. i think that 
it's interesting because yes they are both household items and one could argue like in terms of like goddess of the hearth and like fires are also mm. historically in some cultures very feminine and like keeping your mm. house warm but uh the fire poker was an item of necessity that she was able to grab while she was tethered to the coffee table. Right. And right. so like that, she used that to extract herself from danger and then continued to use that. So I was like, fine with that. I was like, this is what you were able mm-hmm. to grab. But then having that already and then grabbing the frying pan definitely read as weird. Yeah. Because it's mm-hmm. like, mm, you have a thing in your hand. Why are you it's getting sharp. another weapon? And it's like her signature weapon too. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, why? What a weird choice, especially because, again, I mean, we could rattle off several movies right now where a woman uses a frying pan specifically. We see it in Tangled. Tangled. We see it in Roger Rabbit. We see it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. We see it in Chocolat. You know, like it's mm-hmm. always Not Chocolat. <laughs> in Alfred Molina's Chocolat. Look, I got my little, Al- now in my recording area, oh my I have my little Alfred Molina at the ready. 25 oh, I love Alfred Molina. I saw him in a play when plays were still a thing. The last... The last play I ever saw starred Alfred Molina in it. He's great. Wait, the oh. last play? You, did you see the one in Pasadena? I did, yeah, The Father. I saw it too. He Wait. was so good. <laughs> he was good. Everyone else was okay. Everyone else was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see I don't see a lot of like live like plays, but I was so glad I got to see that. It was a weird play. I don't know if I liked the play. It was weird and sad, and ultimately I was like, Okay, I could have not seen this and felt better, <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was well acted. But anyway, back to the movie. Um, I wanted to just really quickly say something that was a reference to something I said earlier. So, and I because I just figured it out in real time. I was like, why does this bother me so much? And it's the um, my my criticism of female characters being written in a certain way in horror movies where they do seem unaware of their surroundings or that they make questionable choices, things like that. And this is almost always a male writer director presenting female characters this way. Mm -hmm. And I'll use one of the worst horror movies I've ever seen as an example, a movie called the terror fire, which is about a killer clown who wreaks havoc around the city and is okay specifically trying to kill this young woman and her friend i would watch it i will say i would watch it would it. get a negative one zillion nipples on the bechdel cast <laughs> hasn't so... stopped us <laughs> in that movie you see the the protagonist who is a woman making countless choice after choice after choice of just you as the audience would be like why would you do that why would you go back into the scary warehouse where you know a killer is why would you do any of what you're doing besides running away and trying to find safety and that is the thing that I take issue with because it's like as women we are constantly on high alert for our safety right we know the dangers lurking out there Mm -hmm. and we're not just like obliviously making horrible choices all the time to go into scary warehouses where we just almost got murdered right so yeah like i i just said i wouldn't put one of those family stickers on my car because somebody might come and murder my family like (laughs) (laughs) right yeah we're we're all on the defensive now i'm like damn hadn't thought about that about the stickers but now i'm (laughs) off them for life or i'll put a different sticker to throw them off my track Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah. <laughs> right, right. It's like, we have 18 kids and we all have guns. Stay away. <laughs> so, yeah. So the point is, like, I just, I get so annoyed when, like, again, specifically men who are making horror movies don't even know to take into consideration the high alert that women have to be on just in everyday life, especially at night, you know. Right. And then make the assumption that it's irrational at its core. Right. So that's, I just wanted to clarify, because I'm always like, oh, I sound so like victim blamey. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I think that's one of the reasons that I like the Scream franchise so much, because Sydney Prescott is always very aware and hyper aware, and she's yeah. had multiple killers come after mm-hmm. her. So as each movie gets on, she becomes smarter and more creative. But it's like basically about a woman who continues to be stalked. Right, right. And like how she fights against that, as opposed to like, Oh, la-di-da, I'm finding myself in this situation. Like, she becomes a target for these people who become obsessed with her, especially after a film about her life is made. So I think that that's really intriguing. Also, I love the movie Stab, which is the Scream movies inside the Scream movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I love that inside the movie, in the fourth Scream, they have, like, a stab fest. But anyway, back to us. I love I love screen. And going off what you're saying, Caitlin, I, I am encouraged by seeing movies like us. And even because it's like, you know, we can't necessarily stop men from writing movies, right? <laughs> so if we're going off of that, it is nice that they seem to be getting a little bit better about at least recognizing the tropes of the genre Mm -hmm. that are irrational and harmful and have everything to do with their writing versus what the reality is i feel like another example you could point to is the new halloween movie where you know laurie laurie strode is it strode strode um in in the original franchise like her actions are made to seem somewhat irrational very like final girly Mm -hmm. and then in the new one you see that she's been like living this life of fear and like what are the ramifications of that and examining at least and it's i will say that horror movies recent horror movies have done it with mixed results Mm -hmm. uh but examining the ptsd aspect of being pursued by something terrifying and how that affects you Mm -hmm. psychologically i will say that i don't think i don't there's not a lot of horror movies that do it extremely well the babadook comes to mind of like one horror movie that deals with ptsd and and just like a fear really really well i thought or at least when we did the episode was that one ptsd wasn't i thought it was postpartum postpartum yeah but i mean like a a form of of psychological stress and trauma Uh here in in us i it's kind of muddled for me where so we see young Addie, who actually is young red mm-hmm. come up to the service and then she's put into therapy because she's not speaking this is perceived to be a result of ptsd mm-hmm. it also appears to be a stressor on her parents marriage mm-hmm. which is every child of divorce's worst fear yeah. although they seem to have some issues before also oh clear yeah because there's like it sounds like he you know like there's there's some drinking going on and mm-hmm. other other stresses on the relationship um but i don't know i'm curious of like what you both made of that plot point i thought uh i felt like it was less about 
developing PTSD and more about setting up for the reveal. And also I do like that it was, she was gone for 15 minutes. What can happen in 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. And when we are in real time and the invasion is happening, uh, they call the police and the police say they will be there in 15 minutes. And we already know what is going to happen or what can happen in 15 minutes. If you're rewatching it, you're like 15 minutes is not good. You need to be there sooner bad things can happen and i thought it was interesting that it was the dad who was like what could have happened it was only 15 minutes and the mom was like Mm -hmm. a lot can happen in 15 minutes like addie's mom like knows and that's why she's so concerned for her daughter yeah Yeah. because they have no clue what's happened to her and it's far worse than they could have even imagined Mm -hmm. like they don't they never see their daughter again actually and the other the other read that I was and this isn't I don't have this backed up by anywhere. So maybe I'm just uh, my brain is just turning into pudding over time. Um, <laughs> but I was I was thinking um, just in terms of how it seems like Addie's parents like want to get her help from a therapist. But mm-hmm. the PTSD, while it it's made, I it feel I feel like it sort of ties into what the message of the movie is, where it's they're ascribing PTSD to an individual when it actually represents something that is far larger. Where it's like red is representative of this whole unseen population that is being actively oppressed, and that is where this like stress and trauma is coming from. And also, she can't communicate with mm-hmm. her parents and she cannot describe what the problem is and f- for self-preservation issues even when she has the tools to communicate she doesn't because she wants to thrive in Addie's place and right. I, I don't know it's dense yeah here's a question do we think that Addie when she is newly Addie when she's come from underground do we think that she has repressed the fact that she was originally a tethered because I felt like that was supposed to be something we were believing. Yeah, I th- that was how I, that's how I thought we were supposed to see it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was focused far more on, and again, maybe this is just me trying to make sense of something too hard, but I was focused more on, well, why doesn't real Addie, who has now been trapped underground and made to live among the tethereds, even though she is not a tethered, why does she never try to escape and just go all it seems like all she would have had to do is like run up an escalator that is going in the downward motion but it seemed i was like why doesn't she she knows where she comes from why doesn't she ever try to leave this terrifying place i that was curious for me too because so the tethered are mirrors of what's going on above ground. They're doing all the things that their above ground people are doing. Mm-hmm. And then they switch places. So when they switch places is now underground Addy and tethered to above ground Addy, because there is also the speculation that they're sharing one soul. So it's not even that they mm-hmm. are soulless. It's that they're like, everybody's got half a soul sort of right. split mm-hmm. between them. So like, is the soul stationary and it lives above ground? <laughs> like what is, What's the deal well, there? Well, that's what Red seems to explain in the when they first invade the home. And she's like, mm-hmm. I was tethered to you, and that's why I'm trying to become untethered. So I I think, but th- yeah, I guess that that's why I don't really like the ending. There's so many story logic issues that come up for me, and I'm just like, oh, what? Huh? 
Well, and the dance is the big linchpin when she's like 14 years old and she has this dance recital where she ends up getting injured. And my understanding of that was that Red, underground version Red, was able to take control during that dance. And that's how she was ultimately injured because mm. she has that line where she's like, oh, I peaked at 14 with her leg yeah. as a dancer. And uh, that's when they realized she was special because she could control her above ground or she could break yeah. from the tethering. And I don't understand what that was because they would all have to have eventually broken from the tethering to be able to even plan this and put on these fashionable jumpsuits. Right. So is that the moment where everything switches? The ending worked for me on this viewing, going with the read of the movie that I'm currently going with. (laughs) Um, In that way, I feel like it really works where if you're going off of Jordan Peele's kind of uh, thesis that this is a movie about like you, you know, American exceptionalism, like I deserve this lifestyle. This is I'm entitled to this and just kind of, I don't know, like exploring that fallacy of like oh there's enough uh there's enough prosperity to go around where the reality of what i mean i we've gotten this far without saying capitalism so sorry but like (laughs) the, the reality of like american capitalism is that it's designed so that there's not enough room for everybody. And mm-hmm. so for one person mm-hmm. to prosper by this movie's logic and, and by a lot of reality, another person has to be oppressed and suffer. So in that way, I felt like the swap ending works if that is supposed to be the message at the core. But mm-hmm. like logistically, there's for sure I'm like, hmm, huh? What? Mm-hmm. And also there every time I do have to say it's an incredible line read from Lupita Nyong'o. But every time... <laughs> Red's like, we are Americans. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. all right. <laughs> Hitting it real okay. hard there, Jordan. <laughs> well, that transitions into a talking point that I wanted to hit on, which is um, the use of disability equals evil in a horror movie. This yeah. is an enormous widespread trope um, because what happened here is that Lupita revealed at some point that as inspiration for the way she made Red's voice sound, she used the symptoms of spasmodic dysphonia, which is a neurological mm-hmm. disorder that causes involuntary spasms of the larynx. Um, and her revealing this received, understandably, Backlash, And uh, I'm pulling from an article in The Guardian entitled Lupita Nyong'o's Under Fire from Disability Groups for, quote, evil voice in us. So Respectability is a nonprofit organization that works to fight stigmas against people with disabilities. The president of Respectability, Jennifer Laszlo Mizrahi, said, quote, Connecting disabilities to characters who are evil even further marginalizes people with disabilities who also have significant abilities and want to contribute to their communities just like anyone else. Dot, dot, dot. What is difficult for us and for the thousands of people living with spasmodic dysphonia is this association to their voice with what might be considered haunting. End quote. So again, this is just another movie that ascribes a 
disability or a characteristic of a disability to a character who is evil, who is violent, who murders people. And this isn't just a horror movie thing. This happens in action movies. This happens in sci-fi movies. This happens fantasy a lot. Basically across film in general where disability will be demonized. Yeah, Yeah, fiction across the world in every (laughs) aspect. Disability will be demonized. I will say... I love How to Train Your Dragon 2 because I feel like it sort of goes against that where in How to Train Your Dragon 2, what's his face? I just forgot his name. Hiccup, mm-hmm. the uh, the main character, he has lost a leg and he modifies his dragon so that he can ride his dragon even with the missing leg and he has like a prosthesis. And uh, the villain of How to Train Your Dragon 2 also has a disability but refuses to accept that their disability is a part of who they are and like that's why they're bad. Oh, not wow. because of disability. I like. I literally wept when I saw How to Train Your Dragon too. I was like, "This yeah. is beautiful." Um, <laughs> I haven't seen those movies. That's they're pretty good. But I mean, even speaking to how disability is portrayed, and then and the fact that it's it like the demonization of disabled people is so normalized that Lupita Nyong'o didn't think twice about saying that is, I mean, it goes, Mm -hmm. I'm glad she was called out for that, but it speaks to something that is much larger where it's like, this is a horror movie that subverts so many common pitfalls, but there still wasn't really thought of or discussion about how disability is presented by mm-hmm. by the filmmakers or by the actors or, or kind of on any level which I feel like speaks to just how cooked in it is to what is quote-unquote okay to do For in sure. a movie and Lupita apologized and I have this quote here as well she said quote it's a very marginal group of people who suffer from this which sidebar is like well that doesn't make it okay she's almost like are you saying that that makes it okay that it's only it's like, a few okay, number of people okay, that are offended like who who are this affected but it's like I uh, was only gonna hurt 17 people <laughs> <laughs> yeah to continue the quote The thought that I would, in a way, offend them was not my intention. In my mind, I wasn't interested in vilifying or demonizing the condition. I crafted red with love and care. As much as it was a genre-specific world, I really wanted to ground her in something that felt real. For all that, I say sorry to anyone I may have offended." So I I don't love this apology. I feel like I she's not the best. It's kind of like, well, in my defense, but also I'm sorry. Like, yeah. But it's like love and care for who? Like, that's such a weird thing to add that I crafted red with love and care. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, that mm, Lupita. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like if we're giving, I don't know. That was like not a great apology. I've heard worse. Uh, but, but I do good. hope that like she's she is going to carry this forward. And I hope that, you know, other actors saw this and was were you know, will think twice it's it's an easy it's just again it's like it's so easy to just not do this and be respectful of other people um and yeah it's not like it's usually people's intention to demonize things like this but because like you said jamie it's become so normalized that people just do it without even giving it a second thought about who would be negatively affected by these kinds of misrepresentations which is kind of fascinating because that's like what the movie is about (laughs) that that she's in is like how (laughs) 
the whatever upstairs Lupita has nothing but good intentions and is trying to do well, but is ignoring what is going on elsewhere and is willfully ignorant of what's going on elsewhere. And this is like, I guess, not a one to one example, but a microcosm. But he is not even willfully ignorant. I mean, maybe, but it's, it's it comes down to the question of is she has she repressed all of those memories of when she did live among the tethereds underground or I guess I'm I guess I meant more them? just like sure. in those characters in general not yeah. the, not the swaps right, right, right. well and the, the frustrating thing for me is that there's also a plot-based reason for red to have a voice like that she gets choked right she gets choked out and dragged down there mm-hmm. and she also has not spoken English in presumably many many years so she's been using this other language that is very throat based and she has throat injuries and like I don't understand why it had to be ooh there's this disease that looks interesting for me to copy mm-hmm. it it just doesn't make sense because there's so many things that are based in the character and in the text that would make crafting that more sense right like i, I she don't she could have just done an andy circus Gollum voice <laughs> or something i love andy circus i love andy circus yeah okay circus hive over here <laughs> he seems like he'd be so much fun to like go to a party with and just hang out with him right? the whole time and talk to no one else at the party i got to interview him a couple of years ago and it was I think my favorite interview I've ever done with anyone. Just such a pleasant, smart, thoughtful. I could go on. I'd spent one hour with him and I just have carried it for like, I don't (laughs) even know how long it was. It could have been like four years ago, but I was just like, he was so nice. I was so much taller than him. Exciting. (laughs) The other things I had to mention were kind of, I mean, I wanted to touch on the music, not really for uh intersectional feminism but just because i think it's really fascinating mm-hmm. the use of music and um karama like you were saying this composer uh michael a bit uh abels i have no idea how it's pronounced uh-huh. i just made a choice and went with it so sorry <laughs> michael <laughs> i don't know how to pronounce his last name if abels or abels uh i mean his composition is incredible he pulls from uh just like learning even about the music he pulls from uh, Tchaikovsky for that ending. Mm. He's like blending I Got Five on it with Tchaikovsky and it's like a section of Tchaikovsky from The Nutcracker where Clara is being pulled into a mirror world. So there's like that whole thing. It's so smart and so cool. And I also really liked um, that there is a black ballerina like motif in this movie. You like that's like such a rare thing you never get to see in movies and especially in professional ballet that's like a huge discussion that is ongoing in the ballet Mm -hmm. community and i just love ballet in general the dancing in this movie it's both upstairs downstairs it's all beautiful i loved it (laughs) (sighs) okay i think that that was that was just a small rant i saved for the end please thank you uh (laughs) karama do you have anything else you wanted to discuss I wanted to just discuss how I think Jordan Peele does a really great job of integrating visual clues and like just a lot of visual symbols and 11s coming up a lot. Like it's the first scene, the first scene on the boardwalk. Yes, we have the 1111. We have the people playing rock, paper, scissors who keep doing scissors, which is also like a two. There are a lot of twos and 11s throughout the movie. Yeah. And, uh, 
it's her birthday she gets number 11 which is the thriller one which is sort of about yeah. the like mm-hmm. real the like good michael jackson turning into the bad michael jackson uh there's just like a lot that's happening there when she's watching the news it's like channel 11 news you see the little 11s um, although they say mm-hmm. channel seven, I think, or they say channel four, or channel seven instead, but it says 11 on the screen, which was like, I was like, huh, somebody missed that or I'm missing something. No. <laughs> yeah. um, and just like so cool. the ambulance, the ambulance that gets the Jeremiah eleven eleven guy at the beginning of like the current day stuff. It's ambulance number two, which is the same mm-hmm. ambulance that they end up getting in and driving away in, in the end. Um, there's, there's so Mm -hmm. much just with 11s and twos that happens there. And like I said, the 15 minutes thing that I mentioned earlier, how that became a mirror of what can happen in 15 minutes with the, uh, Mm -hmm. disappearance at the beginning and then with the police coming in 15 minutes, just, I think that it's really cool to see him sneak all that stuff in there. And I just think it's a pretty, it's pretty tight, except for, like you said, Caitlin, that last, like, 10, 15 minutes where it's like, you explained too much. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. I'm just like, Jordan, do another rewrite of the end. Um, I (laughs) Just going off of, because I think we, like, vaguely referenced it at the very beginning of the episode, but um, something that has been coming up a lot in this year's month of horror movies is the fact that there is an unhoused person that is dead at the or really injured at the beginning of the movie as like a warning, mm-hmm. um, I oh. think is something that we have been seeing pop up in a lot of horror movies, or at least two uh, out of the four we're covering <laughs> this month, um, feature a story beat where an unhoused person is um, brutalized or killed as a vague plot point to keep the protagonist story moving. We also saw this in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Mm-hmm. And uh, just write better. You don't have to <laughs> do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agree. Uh, I think the last thing I wanted to say was that I don't know if anyone noticed Addie's dad at the very beginning of the movie playing whack-a-mole and how bad he was at it. He Uh really sucked. He he wasn't (laughs) moving the mallet around. He was just hitting the same empty hole over the mole hole over and over again and nothing was popping out of it. I'm just like, sir. He also stopped playing in the middle where I don't know why I got so, but I was just like, you just gave them two tickets to play and you're stopping (laughs) in the middle? You're wasting wasting time. (laughs) And oh, it was two tickets. Yeah, it's like my inner Chuck E. Cheese stand. <laughs> it was two tickets also to play the game. <gasps> two <gasps> tickets. It was two tickets. A lot damn. of twos. A lot of twos, a lot of good. 11s. Jordan Peele is a terrific writer. I love Get Out. I wish the ending of Us was as solid as the ending of Get Out. But most, again, most of the. the of but this I like that it invites in so much discussion. Yes, yes, for sure. I just, yeah, I, I can't wait to see more of his work i also i feel like us has more rewatch value than get out i feel like because there's so much that you notice different times in a way i feel like get out is almost because it's so tight you're like oh i see everything it's there yep yep good okay got it and with us it's Mm -hmm. sort of like oh Mm -hmm. there's so much that i don't understand and maybe if i watch it again i'll understand it a little bit more like i feel like there's a secret message and i don't quite have it yet but if i watch it 18 times maybe i'll get it (laughs) right yeah it's fun it's cool it's weird because it's like it's the same genre as his first movie but it's like completely different like it's yeah 
You love to see range. Yes. You love to see range. It has the range. <laughs> Uh, does this movie pass the Bechdel test? We already said yes, it does. Yeah. Between yes. um, Addie and her daughter Zora, between Addie, Addie and, and Red. Uh, well, my question about that with Red, they never say Red's name on camera. So does she count as a named character? If they don't say the character's Ooh. name, that's my question. Uh, well, my take on that is always like, even if the character isn't given a name, are they narratively significant enough? that they matter to the story because the name yeah. the naming caveat's always like oh are they like a barista who, who you see for five seconds in the movie mm-hmm. uh and they don't have a name because they are not an important character yeah they're an under five i think it's yeah so i, I yeah i count any interactions between addy and red as passing fair fair and as far as our nipple scale goes the zero to five nipples based on its based on an examination of intersectional feminism um, for this one, I think I would go like a three and a half. I do appreciate its exploration of class uh, and privilege and kind of the, the, what is the word that I'm trying to think of? The fallacy, I think, of the American dream and, and things like that as sort of like an allegorical presence in the story. I do really appreciate the way that Adelaide's character is the protagonist and the most active character. Uh, we see her do things uh, that are... <laughs> well, we I'm... sure do. <laughs> My brain is also pudding. Um, <laughs> I also love how active Red is. I mean, both of Lupita's characters are like the people in charge of their respective situations, which makes sense because they're tethered together. You know, they share the same soul. But they are the ones who are making the most active choices. They are the ones who are calling the shots in whatever it is they're trying to do. Zora also we see doing a lot of fighting. She attacks three different characters or there's at one point they're talking about like their kill counts and they're almost like (laughs) kind of being like well i get to drive because i've killed the most people and she kills two uh and then she she thought she killed three but then yeah she thought she had three but she actually had two that seems Mm -hmm. really funny yeah I, i like that you see female characters in a horror movie like knowing the danger they're in immediately responding appropriately to that uh making active choices doing fighting that feels appropriate to what they would be capable of doing um nothing felt like how did how does she suddenly like a martial arts master with this uh fire poker like we don't see right. anything like no that. mary sue stuff it's all it's all pretty grounded <laughs> so yeah i uh i i just wish the ending was a little bit different um but other than that i do really enjoy this movie uh i'd give it three and a half nipples I will give two of them to Lupita on the condition that she learns from her mistake of demonizing a characteristic of a disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give one to the actor who played Zora, whose name is... Shahadi Wright-Joseph, I think. She's yes, great. Exactly. I like her a lot. And I'll give my remaining half nipple to the actor who played young red slash Addie and her name I also wrote it down is Madison Curry so uh, those are my distributions 
I think I'm going to go four on this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I Yeah, I mean, there's... There's definitely some small things, and a lot of it were had a little more to do with the production than the movie itself. But I mean, Lupita marginalizing disabled people in that way—that's uh, you gotta dock it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I mean, we discussed a few things, but I think by and large, I mean, this movie does so many things that your average horror movie isn't doing in terms of like you could not have a more complicated dual shared soul character than red and adelaide there's so much being examined Mm -hmm. just within these two characters and how they interact with each other like it's uh (laughs) it's slightly confusing at the end but it's still it's i mean show me show me more layers i don't think it's possible uh i i i don't know i i like how I guess kind of like the reflection of a lot of family dynamics of like Adelaide is very much in charge of her family, but has, I mean, even the reflections on masculinity that this movie has, I thought were pretty effective of, um, you know, you understand why Gabe is kind of in this standoff with Tim Heidecker, whose name I never remember, uh, Josh, Josh, but it is an impediment to the family ultimately and I like the showing of masculinity in um, Jason where by being more uh, sensitive and more receptive to things he sees things that uh, other characters just don't Uh, Zora is super active she's like one of the funniest characters very able to call her dad out on his yeah, bu- yes. bullshit and like <laughs> I don't know I Incredible. just like the and and I and I enjoyed most of the commentary being made with Kitty Tyler as well mm-hmm. I didn't really I was touch and go on the face the girl joker moment it wasn't my favorite thing in the world but mm-hmm. I I think I mean for especially for a, a, a movie that's written and directed by a man that it's largely, I mean, the portrayal of femininity and masculinity I thought was really effective and cool and used to examine a larger thing of uh, pretty effectively. So I'm going to go four. I'll give one to Adelaide, one to Red, one to Zora, and then uh, half of one to Kitty, and then the last half to little Adelaide. Sorry for cutting a nipple in half. <laughs> Sometimes it must be done. I am going to, like two tethers standing together, give four nipples. Um, I, <laughs> two and two? They, they, yep, twos. Twos everywhere. Nipple, 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 nipple. Also, 1111 uh-huh. is 1111, one, 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 which adds mm-hmm. up to four. Yep. <gasps> Damn. The number of nipples I'm giving. It's all there. Uh, I like the commentary and how there's an acknowledgement of the fact that we are all living on stolen land Mm -hmm. and how that is going to bite us in the butt if we do not acknowledge it and uh, Mm -hmm. should be acknowledged because of the way that people are treating each other. And I would like to see less of the issues with the unhoused people and the, uh, the issue with the demonization of this disability so that's automatically a nipple off in terms of not hitting the the five nipples but i will give a nipple to uh a shared nipple between the lupitas uh two nipples for shahadi Wright <laughs> joseph because 
I honestly, every time I watch it, I have to remind myself that she is one person playing two characters and not two different actors. I yeah. feel like she and her tether right? were the most different for it's me. It's incredible. So she gets two nipples, and then I'm going to give the last nipple to uh, to Jason for the line, kiss my anus, which is yes. a beautiful <laughs> line. <laughs> and then Zora's like, where did you even learn that word? <laughs> He doesn't want to get in trouble for swearing, so he goes to the anatomically correct terms. <laughs> and, and it's way gross. It is hilarious. Oh, I love it's all so those much characters. <laughs> so those are my four nipples. Um, great exploration of privilege disparities uh, and not great exploration of privilege disparities between people with disabilities and able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, overall, good stuff, good story, good characters, fun time. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you for being here, Grandma. Yes. It was so fun to have Thank you Thank you back. for having me. Yes, I'm so glad. Uh, tell Yay. us where people can check out your stuff online. You can check me out at Karama Drama, K-O-R-A-M-A-D-R-A-M-A. -A -A. Uh, it rhymes for your pleasure. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter and Instagram, though I do not frequently post on Instagram because it makes me sad. Mm. But uh, Twitter's great. Follow me on Twitter. I make jokes about Batman's dick. It's fun. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Good. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you can follow us as well on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast. You can subscribe to our Patreon, aka Matreon. It's $5 a month. It is uh, two, two, wow, two Makes bonus episodes every month uh including access to the entire back catalog you can do you can get our merch at tpublic.com slash the bechdel cast uh and we also have uh, face masks there so if you're looking for a, a, a fun and fashionable way to uh live in the scariest timeline that's a way to do it yes indeed and um now we go we scuttle back underground and s stay tethered i don't know <laughs> my brain <laughs> is tired bye, bye. Ciao. bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. 
To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.